Just a reminder that we have brochures out in the foyer on the summer camp that uh, North Stonington Bible Church is going to be uh, holding this summer, which they do every summer. And last week I announced the brochures on the high school camp and the uh, mid, uh, middle school camp, which are coming up at the end of June. So if you plan on, uh, or you plan on having your kids go to one of those, you need to uh, see about registration very quickly. But there is also an elementary school camp, which is uh, which will be held on July 25th to 30th, and that's a yellow brochure, and that's out on the table as well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, prepared to study the Word of God. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins when He died on the cross for our salvation. It was His spiritual death on the cross, not His physical suffering, that had value for our salvation. When he was separated from the Father from those three hours of darkness, from noon until 3 p.m., that was the time when the sins of the world were poured out upon him. He paid for those sins prior to his physical death. Because he paid for those sins, once we accept Christ as Savior, all of our sins are forgiven. All pre-salvation sins are forgiven. But we still sin after salvation. And those sins cause a disruption in our fellowship with God and our spiritual advance so that God has provided a grace provision for us to simply put our faith alone or to simply uh, confess our sins, to identify our sins to Him using the principle of 1 John 1, 9. And when we do that, we are instantly forgiven of all of our sins and, and cleansed so that we are restored to fellowship We are in a position where God the Holy Spirit is teaching us and producing spiritual growth in our life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are truly grateful this morning that we have this opportunity and privilege to gather together, to assemble for the teaching of your word, that nothing in life is more important than to understand the realities of life which you have revealed to us in your word. 
And Father, the highest form of worship is to take the time out of our busy schedules on a consistent basis to study your word because it is through your word that our thinking is transformed and we begin to look at life as it is and not under the uh, distortions that are so often present because of human viewpoint in the world, the cosmic system, and our own sin nature. Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning that we would uh, have the time, be able to concentrate, focus, and be responsive to the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. Father, we also continue to pray for our nation. As we are in this war against terrorism, we pray that you would give our president, our military and civil leaders the wisdom, the guidance, the direction, the information they need to make wise decisions. We pray that you would continue to watch over this nation to protect us. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct those in leadership. We pray that you would watch over those from this congregation that are either in the military serving in Afghanistan or in Iraq or perhaps serving in a civilian capacity that you would keep them safe and secure. Father, we pray today that we would not be superficial about our handling of your word and that we would be indeed responsive to what the Holy Spirit teaches us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will pick up where we left off last time at verse 29. Just a brief review of this difficult passage, difficult verse, before we move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. This verse reads, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, last time I pointed out that this verse, at least on the surface, seems to suggest that there was some sort of practice where people were baptized for the dead. The Greek phraseology here is important to understand. It is the use of the Greek preposition huper plus the genitive of the second person plural pronoun. And huper, H-U-P-E-R, is in many instances the preposition of substitution. And frequently when you find this phraseology of huper plus the genitive uh, plural of either uh, second person plural of you, you all, or us, or them, the world, What we have, especially when the discussion is on Christ's atonement, we have an emphasis on substitution. But that is not the only meaning for huper plus the genitive. It can have a number of other meanings. And I pointed out last time that the most likely meaning in this passage is the idea on account of or because of. And when you handle a problem passage, one of the things you do is you take a look at it and say, well, can it mean what it appears to say on the surface? And it can't, absolutely cannot, because, number one, baptism is not the basis for salvation. So baptism does not 
do anything uh, to save somebody. It is not equal to salvation. It does not make people savable. There are those who hold to a doctrine known as baptismal regeneration. And baptismal regeneration is a doctrine that teaches that you are regenerated by baptism. If you're not baptized, you're not saved. And you will find that some people believe that, some people teach that. That's why they emphasize uh, infant baptism. And this really comes out of a pagan practice in the Middle Ages. And there's a whole problem associated with the translation of the word baptism. The verb is baptizo. B-A-P, I left the letter out, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O. And the core meaning of this word is to dip, plunge, or immerse. So the technical root meaning of the word means to immerse something into something else. Now that can be a literal immersion or it can be a figurative immersion. But the idea is immersion. Now the function of immersion was, or its significance, was identification. In the process of performing a ceremonial baptism, the purpose was to show an identification of one thing with another. And you can go back into classical Greek literature and you can see evidence of, for example, passages that talk about uh, hoplite soldiers in the Spartan army taking their uh, spears and dipping them into a bucket of pig's blood. So baptism doesn't always have to do with water. It has to do with dipping something in something. But it wasn't the dipping of the spear into the blood that had any value in itself, but it had a symbolic meaning. It represented something, and it was identifying that spear with blood or with death, and the process itself is an initiation because at that point, symbolically, what it is showing is that the soldier is ready and prepared to do battle, and he is he is now on the verge of going into battle and going into war, and he's ready, he's prepared. So it's initiation into a new state. Now, that's the, that's the basic function of baptism. And I pointed out last time that there are eight baptisms in the Scripture. Now, the reason people get all confused about baptism is because in the, in the early church, as a result of the influence of various external forces, uh, people shifted by the 3rd or 4th century to an infant baptism. And, this, and they began to get the idea that baptism literally washed away sin. It was a very confusing concept. They didn't understand the symbolism, the representational impact of baptism. In fact, if you go back into the 2nd century A.D. and you read some of the early church fathers, they, actually, they taught that, that baptism really saved. They, they believed that there was a physical washing of sin. Now, last time we looked at a passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, where Peter says, corresponding to that, that is Noah's deliverance, 
baptism now saves you. And I pointed out that he is not talking about a soteriological baptism there. He is not talking about the fact that, or excuse me, he's not talking about water baptism there. He's talking about, because he goes on to say, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, he's not talking about a literal physical water baptism in 1 Peter 3.21. It's not the removal of the dirt from the flesh. It's not a physical washing that is significant here. So that tells us that there are at least is an indication that there are two kinds of baptisms in the Scripture. There are what we refer to as ritual baptisms and real baptisms. Actually, there are eight distinct baptisms described in the Scripture. Some people, as soon as they see the word baptism, they immediately think of the Christian ritual. But that will often lead to a misinterpretation of the passage. One of the sad illustrations of this was one we ran into several years ago when I was teaching in Kazakhstan. And uh, I had a group of students, pastors, and those who wanted to be pastors. Half the group were Russian speakers. The other half were Kazakh speakers. Now, that really gets confusing. You really understand the impact of the Tower of Babel when you have to teach a group like that. And one of the most confusing days was one day the lady, who was an excellent translator, but the lady who did the translation for the Kazakh group had to leave. She was the pastor's wife, and she had to leave to go take care of a registration of some of the students in Kazakhstan, like in many of the uh, former Soviet republics. Everybody has to register. And so if you come in from out of town, you have to go down to the government office, take your passport, visa, and everything, and register. And so she had to do that. She was the one who was taking care of this. So she had to be gone this day to deal with the registration problem for some of the students. And so we were left with a problem with translation. But there was one student there who spoke Russian and Kazakh very well, but he did not speak English. So I would teach... It would be translated by the Russian translator from English into Russian, and then he would translate it from Russian into Kazakh. They probably understood about 10% of what I taught that day. (laughs) Very difficult. But one of the problems that we had was that the Kazakh people do not have a complete Bible in their language. They do not even have a complete New Testament in their language. And there were many times when I would say, well, let's turn to such and such a passage, and they didn't have it. So that, of course, is going to create a very shaky theology in those cultures that don't have the Bible in their own, the whole Bible in their own language. Well, another problem was that the Bible that they did have was translated by an American Baptist missionary. And he didn't translate it from the Greek. He didn't even translate it from the Latin. He translated it from the New International Version. And I'm not a big fan of the New International Version as a translation. It is based on a translation theory known as dynamic equivalence, which borderlines on a paraphrase rather than a strict translation like the New American Standard or the New King James Version. And every time he translated the word baptism, he used the Kazakh word for washing. Now, if you 
kind of understand the significance or the the sim- symbology of baptism, then you can maybe work with that. But when you get into the, all of these various baptisms that are dry baptisms, that are real baptisms that don't involve water, it's very confusing. So you're taking a subject that is already troubling to people and making it even worse. Well, the other problem that we have in English with the word baptism is that the original meaning was to dip, plunge, or immerse, as I stated earlier. Well, by the, when the early church got into infant baptism, and of course you don't want to stick a baby underwater, so then they had to, um, be, and they got into infant baptism because they thought that, well, this somehow is going to protect this child and preserve them so that they'll be saved on a provisional basis until they're old enough to express faith. And, of course, then that became uh, easily distorted into the fact that the baptism saved them. And once they started doing infant baptism, then it was real easy to make the shift from immersion to simply sprinkling uh, the child because you didn't want to immerse them underwater. And then you got into the whole problem of the fact that the church and the state were identified with each other from the time of the Emperor Constantine in approximately 315 A.D., when he identified and legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire and outlawed all of the other religions, uh, at that, from that point on, throughout Western European history, Christian, when Christianity became identified with the state, entrance into membership of the church was symbolized by baptism. But if you were a member of the church, you were also a citizen of the state. So membership in the church and, and, and the citizenship in the state become uh, confused and merged together. Therefore, if you get kicked out of the church, you're also what? Being kicked out of the state. If you're guilty of being an enemy of the church, you're also what? An enemy of the state. So that in all of this confusion, you got to a point where baptism was more than just a theological doctrine, but it was also a statement about your allegiance to the political authorities. That's why when you get into the Reformation, you have two groups, actually. You have the you have one group of reformers, the Lutherans on the one hand, and then the what has come to be called the Reformed group, which is those who were influenced by Calvin and Bullinger and Zwingli. Bullinger and Zwingli were the Reformation leaders in Switzerland. And they are the fathers of what is known as the Reformed Reformed theology, which has come down to us basically uh, congregational, uh, traditional, not present, but traditional congregationalism, uh, Presbyterianism, uh, Presbyterian church are all reformed. But they continued the Roman Catholic practice of infant baptism. They changed it. It wasn't salvific, but it uh, sort of was a provisional salvation for the, for the child as long as the uh, parents were saved, sort of like a baby would get saved on the basis of its parents' salvation idea. Of course, there's no basis for that in Scripture. It wasn't practiced in the early church, and it's not uh, practiced scripturally. But what happened is a couple of Zwingli's followers, Felix Mons and Conrad Grebel, as they read the Scriptures, came to the conclusion that baptism only had significance once you were saved. 
So baptism for them became a statement about your salvation, and it was for believers only. Therefore, they came to the conclusion that infant baptism was wrong. Now, since most people had been baptized as an infant, what they taught was you had to get baptized again because that original baptism didn't do any good. You weren't saved. You hadn't made a decision to put your faith and trust in Christ. And baptism, believer's baptism, is a visual symbol of what took place in your life. It's your testimony that you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and that you understand the doctrine of positional truth, that in salvation you're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so water baptism is a picture of that that going under the water is a picture of your identification with Jesus Christ in his death and burial, and when you come out of the water, it is a picture of your being resurrected to new life. This is the imagery that is picked up on by Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. He says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore... We were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in newness of life. And the picture of water baptism is a picture that the old man, that is who we were before we were saved, not the old sin nature, but the person we were before we were saved is dead, and that we have been given new life in Christ, We have a new allegiance to Jesus Christ who is now our master, our owner, our savior, and therefore there is a responsibility to live this new Christian life. And so this is a a picture of an extremely abstract doctrine that a lot of people don't understand their positional reality in Jesus Christ. They've been united with Christ and given a number of spiritual blessings as a result of their position in Christ, and all of this is for the purpose of living this new spiritual life. Well, that was the purpose of believer's baptism, was to symbolize that. Just as you teach the significance of Christ in his person and work through the Lord's table, you teach the significance of your new position in Christ through believer's baptism. So these men began to teach. They, they, everybody needed to get baptized again, so they were called Anabaptist. And that prefix Anna, A-N-A, means again. And so they were, they were called those who believed that you had to be baptized again or Anabaptists. Well, of course, by making such a statement that your baptism was invalid was not just a theological statement. It was what? It was a political statement. And so they were tried by the courts under Zwingli, and they were sentenced to death. And Zwingli, as it were, said, well, you want to get water, you want to get immersed, well, you're going to get immersed. And they were taken out and drowned in uh, Lake Geneva, I believe. And that was, and so Anabaptists went through a period of extreme persecution for about 75 years after the Reformation because of their belief in believers' baptism. But they did not believe, although there were some splinter groups that did do this, their essential belief of Baptists has never been that baptism saves, but that it is a picture of what happens in the spiritual realm at the instant of salvation. So this is your first ritual baptism, believer's baptism. 
But there were two other ritual baptisms in the New Testament. The second ritual baptism is the baptism of John the Baptist. John the Baptist Baptist came teaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so when the people were baptized, it was to identify themselves with the message of the coming kingdom. Believer's baptism is showing that the believer has been identified with Christ. John the Baptist, the identification, um, the identification was with the new kingdom. And then Jesus came along and he had John baptize him, but that wasn't the same baptism because Jesus didn't need to repent. So Jesus' baptism was his identification with his mission, the mission that God the Father sent him on as Savior. And it inaugurated his ministry. See how each of these show identification and inauguration. At believer's baptism, you're identified with Christ and showing the beginning of new life in Christ. John the Baptist, it's identification with John the Baptist and the inauguration or expectation of the inauguration of the kingdom. And then Jesus' identification with uh, God's plan and his inauguration of his ministry on the earth. But then there are five real baptisms. And these are dry baptisms. There's no water involved except in the two, two instances. And in those two instances, it's not the people who are being baptized who gets wet. It's everybody else. And we studied these last time. There's the uh, baptism of Noah. Those identified with Noah were saved. Those who weren't identified with Noah got wet and they died. Then the second, and that's covered in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. The second dry baptism is the baptism of Moses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, once again, the Jews who were identified with Moses went through the Red Sea and they were delivered. But it was the Egyptians who got wet and they died. The third dry baptism is the baptism of fire. John the Baptist said that he was not, that there was one who was coming after him and he was not worthy to even tie his shoelaces to bring it into a 21st century idiom, but that he would come and baptize with the Spirit and with fire. And this fire speaks of the baptismal judgment of unbelievers when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming at the end of the tribulation period. The fourth Real baptism is a dry baptism, and that is the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, which is what is pictured by believer's baptism. These are the two things that go together. Believer's baptism is a picture of the what takes place in the spiritual realm when the believer is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection by God the Holy Spirit. It is a non-experiential event. It takes place at the instant of salvation for everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it places us in the body of Christ. It is an initiation into the new spiritual life and inaugurates the new spiritual life. And then the fifth real baptism is the baptism of the cross. 
when John the Apostle and Peter said that they would follow the Lord, they said, are you, he said, are you willing to be baptized with my baptism? And he was speaking of the, his baptism on the cross when he would be identified with the sins of the world, when all the sins of mankind would be imputed to him and poured out upon him, and he would pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. And so he was asking a rhetorical question to demonstrate that they were not able to follow him to the cross. So these are the baptisms involved. Now, there's no such thing as a substitutionary or a vicarious baptism. You can't be baptized for someone else. You can't be baptized for their salvation. So it's obvious from Scripture, and last time we went through two passages, Acts 2 uh, 38 and 1 Peter 3.21 to show that these passages do not teach what some think they teach. They do not teach baptismal regeneration. The Scripture is clear that salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. It's not based on our work. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves savable or attractive to God. We simply put our trust in Him. It's, it's non-meritorious. Christ's work has all of the merit. Our work has no merit whatsoever because we are sinners. There's nothing we can do to impress God. There's nothing we can do that has any value. All of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. That's works of righteousness, not works of unrighteousness, but our works of righteousness so that the best that we can do is nothing but filthy rags in God's eyes. So there's nothing that we can do except rely upon what Christ did. We must trust in Him and His work alone. Nothing else matters. So having excluded uh, salvation from the concept of 1 Corinthians 15.29, it can't be talking about uh, baptismal regeneration. It can't be talking about uh, substitutionary or vicarious baptism. It must have some other meaning. And then if we uh, explore history a little bit, we discover that there was no indication either in the, anywhere else in the New Testament or in history of vi- the practice of vicarious baptism. So it, obviously there's no support for that. So then we a- ask, what does it mean? Well, there's a number of different interpretations, and I pointed out last time that there's actually over 200 different stabs at what this means in church history. But there's only two or three that have any real significance, and I think the most likely meaning for this is they were baptized on account of the dead ones, literally. Those who believers who had faithfully witnessed to them during their life, and then they had died. And on account of their witness and because of their faithfulness and because these friends, family, or loved ones wanted to see them in the resurrection, they finally trusted in Christ, but only after that individual died. And because of that person's witness, they ended up becoming a believer and signified that by participation in believer's baptism. So this is what Paul is referring to here. However, he doesn't uh, affirm this practice. He doesn't promote it. He doesn't criticize it. He is simply using it to illustrate the reality of resurrection. Because the point is that if they weren't willing to be, if they didn't believe in resurrection, then why would they become a believer at all? 
if they didn't believe that they would meet these people who had meant so much to them and witnessed to them in the afterlife, in the resurrection, why would they want to go through resurrection? So obviously they practiced this because they believed that they would meet that individual and they would be raised from the dead and they would meet them after death. So Paul's only point here is why would they go through this ritual unless they believed in resurrection? Because that's the point back in Romans 6, 4, which I just read. The purpose of resurrection, uh, baptism, part of its purpose is to show that we will be raised to new life. If there is no resurrection to new life, then baptism has no meaning and no significance whatsoever. So Paul is simply taking the reality of believer's baptism and showing that at its very core is the idea of resurrection. And if you get baptized because someone else has witnessed to you and because of their witness, even to the point of their death, then and you are baptized in the hope of being resurrected with them as a sign of that, as a sign of your faith alone in Christ alone, then uh, that has meaning. But if there's no resurrection, then salvation has no meaning. Then he goes on in verse 30 to say, to give another argument for resurrection. He says, and why do we stand in jeopardy or are we in danger every hour? His first argument in this paragraph is why would you get baptized if you didn't believe in resurrection? It renders the whole concept of baptism irrelevant. Then he says, and why would we even put our lives in jeopardy or in danger in preaching the gospel. And this is his, his point in verses 30 down through 34. He is arguing here that as an apostle, he puts his life in danger day after day after day. Every time he goes anywhere to preach the gospel, he always runs the risk of losing his life. He runs the risk of being thrown in jail. He has gone through this on numerous occasions. Hold your place here and let's look at two other passages which will help us understand uh, what he says or or add a little uh, information to what he's saying here. Turn over to the second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 6. Or let's start chapter 4. Second Corinthians, chapter 4. Verse 8, again, the context is he is talking about our physical life. In verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure, that is the, uh, our, our new life in Christ, in earthen vessels, that is in our physical body. So we, once again, there's the backdrop of our present physical life in contrast to our future resurrection life. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of, may be of God and not of us. So he's talking about that even though we live in a physical life, we have a spiritual life. And that spiritual life has a spiritual means of execution. And we'll look at that before we're done with our passage this morning, that that spiritual means of execution has to do with walking by means of God the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. It is not our power, our ability that enables us to live the Christian life. The Christian life is impossible apart from a walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. 
that the excellence of the power may be of God and not from us. Man cannot produce the spiritual life on his own. And then he gives an example of what he goes through. Verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Now, what does he mean by that? He means by that that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been identified with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that we might live this new life, this new life in Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, For we who live, that is, believers who are still alive physically on the earth, are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. In other words, we're always in a potential situation of suffering. He's just described this. As he carried out his ministry on his different missionary journeys, he was faced with all manner of adversity. Now, most of the epistles don't tell us of everything. We know of a few cases where he was stoned and left for dead in Damascus, and he was let down over the wall and, and escaped. Um, and it's possible that he was, uh, he was left for dead, and possibly he died physically, and the Lord resuscitated him, although the Scripture does not say specifically And we know that he was arrested in Jerusalem, and he was imprisoned for two years before he finally made his way to Rome. But there are many instances that that we're not told about in the life of Paul, but he does allude to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, but in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 4, we read, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. In much patience, in tribulations, that is, in in adversity, in needs and in distresses, in stripes, that is, in getting beaten or whipped, in imprisonments, so it's in the plural, so it's more than one imprisonment, although we know of his being imprisoned in Rome, we know of his being imprisoned in Jerusalem, that had not happened yet, neither of those. The only time that we know of his being put in jail at this point is the time that he was in jail in Philippi, and that was a short time. So he uses the plural here, which suggests that there have been other times when he was jailed or put in prison for his proclamation of the gospel. In tumults, that is in fights, as he would be thrown out of the synagogue as he had been in Corinth. In labors, in sleeplessness as a pastor as an evangelist there were nights when he was sleepless as he was concerned about the congregation as he was uh, thinking about his plans as he was facing the possibility of being thrown in uh, prison the next day in fastings by purity by knowledge by long suffering by kindness by the holy spirit by sincere love by the word of truth by the power of god by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor. Sometimes he was treated honorably, sometimes dishonorably. 
by evil report and good report. There were many times when he faced slander and gossip about him that was completely false. As deceivers and yet true, as unknown as and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. So he describes a situation where he is whipped, he's beaten, he is thrown in prison, and many other types of adversity that he faced on a day-to-day basis as an apostle and just carrying out his ministry. There was the potential of death, there was the potential of martyrdom on any given day. Now let's go back to our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the fact that why would we stand in jeopardy? Why would I run the risk of being thrown in jail, of being taken before a tribunal, having a punishment of being whipped with a cat of nine tails? Why would I run this risk on a daily basis if there wasn't a resurrection? I'm preaching a message that we can have new life in Christ because he died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. And earlier he points out in his argument to the Corinthians that if Christ is not risen, back in verse 17, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So why would I go about preaching the doctrine of resurrection if it weren't true? If it's not true, number one, Our sins haven't been paid for on the cross because it was just the death of another human being. Secondly, if it's not true, then I'm putting my life at risk every day for something that's a lie, something that's false. And this is one of the strongest evidences for the truth and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the time of the crucifixion, all of the disciples, except for the apostle John, ran and hid. They were afraid they would be arrested. Uh, Peter refused to admit that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ because he too was afraid that he would be arrested and thrown into prison or possibly even crucified uh, along with him. Yet, three days later, when the grave was emptied and Jesus Christ rose physically and bodily from the grave, those same 11 disciples who had been, or 10 of them, were hiding in fear discovered a new courage, and they were willing to give their life for the gospel message because they knew that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. So this is Paul's point in verse 30. Why should we, that is, we apostles, stand in jeopardy every hour? In verse 31, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord... I die daily. Now, he is not saying that he physically dies every day and he's brought back to life. He's not using this in a, in a literal sense. He is using it in the same sense that he does in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 6, and in chapter 4, that there's the potential of his death every day. He carries about in his body the dying of Jesus Christ. So there is the potential of his being killed also because of the message of the gospel. So he recognizes that every day he could lose his life for the gospel. And then he gives a hypothetical situation in verse 32, and he uses a first-class condition in the Greek, 
And we have said in the past that there are uh, three different, or technically there's four different uh, conditional clauses or ways to express conditional clauses in the Greek. But here we have the first class condition, which means if and the uh, Protasis, or the first part, the assumption is taken to be true. And he says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Now, at this point, he is not talking about the fact that he's literally faced beasts in the uh, Colosseum in Ephesus. That kind of persecution of believers had not taken place yet. First uh, Corinthians was written about 60 or 61 uh, A.D., and you do not have the first major persecution of believers under Nero where Christians were taken and, and into the Colosseum where they were thrown to the animals until about 63 or 64 A.D. So uh, he's not using this in a literal manner. He is using a hyperbolic illustration. He says, if, according to... Uh, Human tradition, that's what he means by the phrase in the manner, manner of men. He's using a human uh, illustration here. It's hypothetical. He says, if, and, and uh, hypothetically or by way of illustration, that's the idiom there, uh, kata, anthropu, according, uh, kata anthropon according to men. He says, if, according to men or in a human illustration, if I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? So his argument is, even if I were to be in this extreme situation, why would I put my life in jeopardy if there weren't a resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection? In fact, if there is no physical bodily resurrection, then we should follow the principle of the Epicureans. If the dead do not rise, he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And this last phrase, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, is, an, is taken from the poet Menander, who was a classic poet who expressed the views or, or, or summation in, in, a, in a simple proverb of the, uh, of the Epicurean philosophy. In other words, if uh, all there is to life is what's physically present today, and there's no afterlife, there's no accountability, then it doesn't matter what we do. Let's just enjoy life. Let's pursue a life of pleasure. Let's pursue a life where we don't have to go through any suffering or pain. Let's just uh, do whatever we want to do and whatever makes us happy today because there is no happiness in the future. So if there is no resurrection, if there's no future accountability, then it doesn't matter what we do now. Let's just pursue our own uh, self-interest and do whatever makes us smile today, whatever makes us happy. So he's using this to, to show that there is no basis for countering, countering the arguments of the Epicureans. Now remember, when Paul went to, went to Greece... This was one of the major, the two major philosophies that dominated Greece at that time. There was the, the philosophy of the Stoics and the philosophy of the Epicureans. But then Paul concludes with a command, a prohibition in verse 33. Now this is one that, that every, every one of you who's a parent ought to have your children memorize. Do not be deceived. Evil company uh, corrupts 
uh, good ha- habits. Excuse me, the quote before was a quote from the Epicureans. This is the quote from Menander. This was a, uh, he wrote satirical poetry in uh, ancient Greece. And this statement that he had made, evil company corrupts good habits, had become an accepted proverb. He wrote this about the 5th century B.C., and over the years this had just become an accepted proverb, like many statements that we have in American culture, like a stitch in time saves nine. Well, you can quote from a secular writer a true statement. That's because uh, pagans are right every now and then. They live in the real world, and they make accurate observations doesn't mean that everything that Menander wrote comes from God or is inspired by God. But Paul is taking this proverbial statement and saying it's absolutely true, and by taking this statement and quoting it, he, it is sanctified under the inspiration uh, ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and it's a true statement. He says, don't be deceived. In other words, don't be deceived about resurrection. Don't be deceived by getting into false doctrine related to uh, Christianity by associating with those who believe wrong things. And this is the warning that uh, every one of us needs to pay attention to, that if you associate with your close cir- inner circle of friends and associates with people who do not believe in the truth of Scripture, then you run the real risk of having your thinking influenced by their false doctrine. Because, you see, your sin nature has a natural attraction to any kind of thought that you can use to rationalize away obedience to God and the importance and significance of doctrine. There's all kinds of things out there that we can pick up from some friend, some family member, someone we work with, and we hear them say it, and all of a sudden our little sin nature just sort of grabs hold of that. And the next time we get in a situation, instead of thinking about doctrine, we think about what that person said. And we start operating on human viewpoint. And that's especially a warning for young people because you always have a problem when you, once you get past about the age of 10 or 11, maybe it's even younger today, where you start uh, letting friends and people you go to school with have more of an influence on your thinking then your parents are the Word of God. And this is a major problem in adolescence is that you spend all of your time doing what all your friends do and what makes you feel comfortable in the group at school or whatever rather than the Word of God or holding on to Scripture, which will clearly make you stand out as someone different in junior high, high school, or college. So the warning from Scripture is evil company corrupts good habits. So you need to pay attention to who your friends are. And this is a theme that runs through all of the Proverbs again and again and again. For example, Proverbs 1.14, Cast in your lot among us, let uh, let us all have one purse. And then he says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. In other words, the unbeliever wants you to cast in your lot with them and follow their reasoning. And the warning from the writer of Proverbs is, don't walk in the way with them. Don't follow their course of action. Keep your foot from their path. Proverbs 13:20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. 
we do we need to be very careful who our associates are, who our friends are, and how they uh, how they impact us. And then we come to Paul's final conclusion here in terms of application. It's not just a matter of believing a doctrine that there's resurrection from the dead, but that this impacts the way we live. Verse 34, he says, uh, in the, the New King James reads, Awake to righteousness. The New American Standard translates it a little more accurately. Be sober-minded as you ought. And stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak to the, I speak this to your shame. Now, what is Paul saying here? Well, the verb here that is used, that is the aorist active imperative, and an aorist imperative emphasizes immediate action. This is a priority, and this is the verb aknepho. E, E K N E P H O, and this is not a word that you that is normally translated "be sober" in other many other passages, which is a, a word that is used for thinking objectively. This lit, is a word literally for stop being inebriated. This is a word that has to do with uh, recovery from being drunk. And it was used in a figurative sense, though, to come to your senses. In other words, regain control of your thinking, and, and it would be the idea of think accurately. So it's not used in a literal sense here of don't be drunk because drunkenness wasn't a problem. But it has the idea of regain control of your thinking or think objectively. And then the second word that we find here in the Greek is dikaios, D-I-K-A-I-O-Omega-S. And that Omega-S ending, D-I-K-A-I-O-S, the O is an Omega. That Omega-S ending indicates that it's an adverb. Now, basic grammar. An adverb modifies a verb. See, if you look at the, the King James, the New King James translation, awake to righteousness. Well, to righteousness isn't, isn't adverbial, is it? It indicates direction. So that's a mistranslation. The New American, tra- tra- uh, New American Standard translates it, uh, become uh, sober-minded as you ought. The idea is to awake righteously or justly or think justly. If the if that the verb eknepho means to think correctly, used in a figurative sense, to think correctly or objectively according to doctrine, then dikaios would have the idea of justly or in a righteous manner, according to a righteous standard or according to a just standard. The idea of ly being an adverbial ending. So. We're to think according to righteousness or think in a righteous manner. In other words, we're to think according to the standard of God's Word and stop sinning. Well, he's not talking about stop sinning per se. Don't take it out of context. Number one, Scripture is realistic. You can't stop sinning. There's no such thing as perfectionism in this life. There's no such thing as the removal of the sin nature in this life. Until the day you die, you will sin. 
because you still have a sin nature. Now, that doesn't justify or rationalize sin. You shouldn't use it to justify or rationalize sin. But the Word of God is not unrealistic. It's, God is not going to command you to stop sinning because that can't happen. So you have to understand it in the, concept, in the context. And the con- context is to stop sinning in relationship to rejecting the doctrine of resurrection. So he is saying, awake to righteousness, think objectively according to a righteous standard, and stop sinning in relation to believing these false doctrines. And then he ties it to the fact that obviously they're being influenced by some sort of false teaching coming from the uh, uh, pagan crowd around them. And he says, for some do not have the knowledge of God. Some of these people don't know anything about God. They're unbelievers. And you're listening to their arguments against resurrection. And he says, this is, you should be ashamed of this. That's his final statement. I speak this to your shame. Literally, this should embarrass you to no end that you're letting unbelievers who don't know anything about God influence your thinking in this matter. So you need to wake up and quit sinning in this area. And, of course, this takes us back to the basic issue in the Christian life, which is confession of sin. That whenever we get involved in false doctrine, which is the, you know, false application always flows out of false doctrine. We covered this in our study of 1 John, that at the beginning of 1 John, fellowship with the apostles and fellowship with God was related to believing true things about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem with the recipients of that epistle was they were no longer believing in the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of false doctrine, that broke fellowship with the apostles and with God. So doctrine is important. If you believe the wrong things about Christ and his work, you're out of fellowship. It's not just a matter of committing sin. It's living according to false doctrine. So the first issue is you have to recover from sin, which is simply confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. And once we confess our sin, then we begin to walk by the Spirit again. So turn over in your Bibles quickly to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll wrap up with a brief reminder of how the spiritual life operates. Galatians, uh, just two books over, Second Corinthians and then Galatians. Galatians 5, 5.16, Paul says, Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill or bring to completion the lust of the flesh. Literally, that doesn't just mean you won't bring it to completion. It means it will be impossible. It is a double negative in the Greek, may, plus a subjunctive mood verb. And this is the strongest statement of negation possible. And so what Paul is saying, it's impossible to fulfill or bring to completion the lust of the sin nature as long as you're walking by the Spirit. So how do you walk by the Spirit? You walk by the Spirit by putting into practice the mandates of Scripture. Walking by the Spirit isn't some sort of mystical sort of uh, life where you're just walking along. I often emphasize it's walking in conscious dependence upon the Spirit, but, not a, but that's never divorced from the Word. See, you don't want to get into a mystical interpretation here, and Paul prevents that. If you skip down... 
to verse 25, Paul says, If, and it's a first-class condition, if and as believers we do live by means of the Spirit, he says, let us also walk by means of the Spirit. And here the verb is stoicheo, S-T-O-I-C-H-E-O. In verse 16, the verb for walk is peripateo, not stoicheo. So peripateo indicates a a step-by-step walk. Stoicheo indicates following a path, following a line. In other words, following in someone's footsteps. It's following an, an objective path. Well, what's the objective path? See, a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to walk by the Spirit, and they sort of close their eyes, contemplate their navel, and wait for the Spirit to move them, and then they're going to do what the Spirit tells them to do. That's mysticism. You're just guessing. How do you tell the difference between that and liver quiver? See, the Scripture says you follow a specific path. When you walk by the Spirit, you're following in an objective standard or line. How, this is what Paul says in verse, verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If I lead you, you've got me out in front, and you've got a, someone laying out a clear path. Well, the Holy Spirit has laid out a clear path. It's the Word of God. So the Christian life is always led by dependence on the Holy Spirit plus the Word of God. You don't have one without the other. You don't have the Word of God without the Spirit. That leads to legalism. You're living the Christian life without the Spirit just on the basis of your own interpretation of Scripture. Without dependence on the Holy Spirit, you're living according to the sin nature. Or you're living just on the basis of the Spirit without the Word. That ends up in mysticism. You can't do that. You have to use the Spirit of God along with the Word of God. The objective path is the Word of God. These lay out the mechanics. And we've studied the mechanics in terms of the spiritual skills or stress busters. We've already talked about the first two. The first one is confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. This gets us back in fellowship where we can, we are then being filled by means of the Holy Spirit as He fills us with His Word, reminding us of what we've learned, using that to produce spiritual growth, and we continue to walk by the Holy Spirit. And that walking has specific mechanics. It includes grace, uh, Excuse me, the faith rest drill where we take the promises of God and apply them to life situations. Grace orientation where we understand that it's not based on who and what we are, but on who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us on the cross. Doctrinal orientation where we understand that our thinking must be aligned with the doctrine of the word of God. Then we develop as we grow and mature and go through spiritual adolescence. We have a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We know that we're living each day in light of eternity. Seventh, we then begin to develop a real love for God, a personal love for God, because by now we've got enough doctrine to understand more completely what God has done for us. We develop a greater capacity for the spiritual life, and with that, personal love for God, which... uh, transfers into the basic motivation and encouragement for further growth. This develops into our impersonal love for all mankind because we have grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. Ninth, 
We have learned about who Jesus Christ is, and we began to live our life occupied with Christ. And the result of that is that we have perfect inner happiness, tranquility, contentment, and stability in all of life's situations so that we can go through all of those trials and tribulations and traumas that Paul talked about and still have the same level of stability and contentment that he went through because we know that our life is in God's hands and that he is the one who controls all the circumstances of our life. Next time we'll come back and we'll uh, finish up 1 Corinthians 15, or maybe not quite finish it up, but we'll go through the next segment of Paul's arguments in support of physical bodily resurrection with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning to come to a greater understanding of the importance of physical bodily resurrection. It's not just a, an abstract doctrine, but it is one that is at its very core uh, relates to the spiritual life we have after salvation, our new life in Christ, and uh, the challenge and motivation to pursue that new life in Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal destiny or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of church uh, involvement. It's not a matter of being associated with the right church or right group. It is simply a matter of trusting exclusively in Jesus Christ as your Savior, believing that Christ alone did the work. Nothing else helps nothing else is necessary nothing else can do anything to save you other than jesus christ himself it's a matter of faith alone in christ alone father we thank you for the things that we have studied today we pray that you challenge us with them we pray this in jesus name amen